Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Real talk, folks. Who out there is still using paper money? You can be honest. Don't be shy. I'm not talking about debit card people. I'm talking about physical coins and pieces of paper that we have assigned value to. You know who you are. You're slowing up every line you've ever been in. You're making the poor Gen Z cashier count back change. They have no idea how to count your change. The poor kid at McDonald's, you give him a $20 bill and your total is $3.77. And the look of horror hits their face as they realize they have to do math and actually give correct change. Some of these kids have probably never touched paper money. And actually, McDonald's is a bad example because at least stateside here, we are such a cashless society that every McDonald's has basically illuminated all human cashiers. And listen, I've done a little bit of world traveling this year. This has been true in Portugal. This has been true in the airport in Singapore. Cashiers are becoming a thing of the past. You go to a little machine. You beep, beep, boop, 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 hit whatever you want. You insert your credit or debit card or phone payment, and bing, your food comes out. And if you want to use cash at a McDonald's, you actually have to hit a little bell, ding, 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 and wait for the human to come from the back making the food to come up and help you. This is how far we have come as a cashless society between debit cards and credit cards and phone payments. I find it truly boggling that people, by choice, are out there using paper money. And I know it's not just me because I looked up the statistics before this episode. The world, from what you may think of some of the poorest regions in the world, people have paperless transactions. On today's episode, we're going to dive into how to make money by investing in the companies behind our cashless society, specifically one company that is almost dominating the entire market. You are listening to My Millennial Investor the show where I search the financial world for the most up-to-date investment ideas, market trends, and income streams so you don't have to. I'm your host, Nick Bradley, and let's get into it. Our mission is to connect the world through the most innovative, convenient, reliable, and secure payment network, enabling individuals, businesses, and economies to thrive. Whose company's mission statement is that? Well, let's keep going history of this company. In the 1950s, we've got a financial system that is like, they're still working on things. Each company has its own system. If you want to use credit at Woolworths, you have to have a Woolworths credit. If you want to use credit at Domino's, you got to have a Domino's credit and so on and so forth. You like Home Depot, you need your own Home Depot credit. And therefore people had all these revolving credit accounts with all of these different merchants Each merchant had its own particular card, and this forced the general public to pay separate bills through separate mediums, which sounds absurdly inconvenient. And then in 1958, a little company called Visa was formed. Bank of America was the founding 
company behind Visa. And as a credit card program, Visa originally was called the Bank AmeriCard. They developed this system to deal with this issue of multiple cards at multiple places. The conceptual solution, which had been tried before, was issuing a supercard, an instrument that would unify the complete spectrum of the payment system. To test this product, Bank of America went to Fresno, California, where the Bank of America had a 45% market share on the credit anyway. So the initial attempt went very smooth, and by 1959, Bank of America distributed this new credit card to over 2 million people in the state of California. Fast forward to 1966, Master Charge, now called MasterCard, appeared on the scene. And the consequence of an alliance between several banks to fight off the Bank AmeriCard. Well, legal restrictions made expanding to other states a real issue and other things get in the way. To do so and to not get displaced by this new competitor, Bank AmeriCard started signing agreements with other banks and other states, and they're working through the logistics. And in 1970, Bank of America gave up control of the project. They passed along to this, quote, Banks Council, and they created a corporation called National Bank AmeriCard, Inc. In 1972, NBI, you may know them as, licensed to operate over 15 countries, And a year later, NBI launched the first electronic authorization system, followed quickly by the electronic clearing and statement settlement. The completeness of the initiative turned out to be the precursor to VisaNet, which is basically what we now know as the Visa Network, the one that powers all transactions. Listen, in 1974, it got quite a bit difficult Bank of America was in some uh, political disputes as they're trying to roll out their international expansion. And to efficiently manage it, the international bank card company, iBanco, was founded. Later in the 70s, by 1976, different banks and programs united themselves under one arm and they called themselves Visa. The Visa network was created with a purpose of addressing the problem people had with making transactions, each of them was previously processed with, as we said, different methods completely. You've got people doing like the old swipe, swipe with the three-card pieces of paper. You've got people writing your numbers down solely. It was a hot mess. So consequently, VisaNet's intention was to relieve this pain point, and they're trying to help consumers and help companies offering a single connection point for facilitating payment transactions. They've done a pretty good job. Since the 70s, Visa has spent hundreds and billions, yes, billions of dollars working on the network. They're trying to improve and remain ahead of the competition. And beginning in the 2000s, management detected a trend. They saw this cashless society on the forefront. All of their work since the 70s was coming to fruition, and they just started pouring money and money and money into the electronic payment system. Today, Visa has four data centers which make up VisaNet. It's, it sounds like Skynet. VisaNet, Skynet. It might be the same thing. Who knows? So VisaNet supports, listen to these numbers, three plus billion cards distributed among the global population. 16.6 thousand financial institutions. Those are individual banks, not as branches, individual banks. Over 46 million merchants and 200 billion billion transactions a year. That's a lot. So today we're talking about Visa. And right after the break, we're going to jump into the business overview because I think you think Visa is a thing and it's not really a thing. 
in doing this investigation on Visa, trying to find out if they're a good investment, we know credit cards are bad for your debt, but I think they could be good for your investment. So we're going to talk about business overview. We're going to jump into how they do what they do, and then specifically moat, because moat is a very important thing when you're looking for a single stock investment, and Visa's got a heck of a moat. So we'll talk about that right after the break. 
has evolved to the point in which friction and at that time of making the digital payment, it gets reduced to a very minimum. You just you owe $3.77 at McDonald's. You pull out your Visa card like a normal non-psycho. You saw, <laughs> I'm sorry. If you guys use cash, I love you. But you pull out your Visa and you go, whoop, boop, bing, it's gone. You've now spent the money. You now owe the money to somebody else. That's the number one driver of revenue for Visa. Number two is net flows. This subsequent makes Visa focus on enhancing new ways in which money could flow by interchanging parties involved in the different transactions. That's a lot of yada yada verbiage from the Visa website. I think they want it that way. The point is new money makes new money for Visa. Number three, the third way they make money is value-added services. So this segment is intended to create new avenues for revenue independent of the network. So they're trying to build upon the Visa network making money from transactions from banks, looking into cryptocurrencies, and how can they further increase their moat? Because all three of these things builds up Visa's moat. And moat is a crazy important thing as an investor. This is what sets the company apart from the competition. When you're looking at investing in one single stock, whether it's Visa, whether it's an oil company, whether it's Coca-Cola over Pepsi, you need to look and figure out, does this company have a moat? A good example of moat here, since I mentioned Coke and and Pepsi, Coke has a huge moat to the fact that Pepsi in the early 1990s, I know that seems like a long time ago for a lot of us, but I remember when they had Claudia Schiffer on like doing commercials and they had all these cool things. Well, they did one specific advertising campaign where they blindfolded people and they said, here's two different of the top two brands of soda pop, you know, that Coke and Pepsi. And most people picked Pepsi as the flavor they liked the best. But then when you took off the blindfold, people are like, oh, I'm a Coke guy. Oh, I drink Coke. That's moat. Like Coke had so ingrained into people's mind that even after people said they liked Pepsi better, they still went back to Coke because Coke had that moat. They had built that type of audience, that type of loyalty within the product. And it, what, it, that is what makes Coke different, is that loyalty. So anyway, moat for Visa. What is, the, what is Visa's moat? As stated, Visa is a facilitator of VisaNet, and all the services provided are built around VisaNet. And in consequence, to analyze the main durable competitive advantage Visa has, you need to kind of take a, a deeper look into VisaNet. The most developed and mature moat Visa has is its network effects. How is it reaching out beyond. They began acquiring clients and platform users again since 1970. They've turned VisaNet into the most demanded, up-to-date infrastructure of processing digital payments in the world. And in consequence, merchants, banks, basically without choice, have to implement Visa Network. If you don't use Visa, you're going to use one other option and you're going to lose clients. So a lot of banks give you the option, actually. You can have Visa or MasterCard and you know, they basically have a duopoly. You're choosing one of the two, and banks are using both. As of today, VisaNet has a piece of 80% of the world's economy. It's not an option to not utilize Visa if you're a bank or a merchant. If you're selling you know, widgets down the street at your local store, you basically have to accept Visa. Like There's those weird places that are cash-only, right? Other than that, Visa is going to be your starting point of credit card acceptance. And this moat seems to be one of the widest moats out there, specifically in the credit space. Visa has been around for 60 years, and it's made a complete name of itself. 
Like you say Visa around the world, people know what Visa is. So like it may not be as name recognition popular as Microsoft or Google, but it's got to be at least the top 10 most known tech companies in the world. Many people see debt and credit cards with the name Visa on them, but not all of them know that it's not Visa who's actually issuing the card. So it doesn't matter if it's Capital One or Citi or Bank of America, they just see Visa and Visa gets that kind of brand recognition. So when you're a consumer and you're looking through the consumer lens, you don't even really care about the merchant. You just see Visa and you're thinking, hey, this is my Visa card. I came across this quote from this article, Expanding the Rails, talking about the runway, the rails in which you build companies on. It says, if you wanted to build your own payment network to compete with Visa, you'd need to win over issuing banks. Of course, you won't get issuers if you don't have merchants to accept your card. So now you need merchants to get involved involved. And then you need people to actually use your specific card. So now you need to get people involved. And critically, you won't get anyone unless you can ensure security, which itself depends on insights garnered from 100 billion transactions of two specific networks, Visa and MasterCard. And every time you swipe your card, Visa evaluates 500 different data points to determine fraud risk and it calculates a risk score, and it sends that score to the issuer to the approved transaction all in a fraction of a second. Clearly, breaking in between Visa and MasterCard is a tough egg to crack. That is from Expanding the Rails, part two. Okay, so let's talk about, that was the moat. That's what makes Visa nearly untouchable because their security is incredible, their brand name is incredible. Everybody basically has to take them every you have a choice as a consumer whether to use them or not, but the merchants don't. They have to take Visa if they're going to be competitive. So let's look at Visa's competitive positioning. What makes Visa interesting? Well, the competitive landscape in digital payment space is basically, as I've been mentioning, two people. It's a duopoly. It's MasterCard and Visa. And the reason is because both of these companies control over 80%, roughly speaking, it's kind of hard to find numbers in Asia payment processing, but the total volume processed around the world is Visa and it's MasterCard. American Express did over $1.5 trillion in 2022, which is an immense number. In absolute terms, though, that's only 10% of Visa's volume. Yowza. $1.5 trillion, and that's only 10% of what Visa did. Visa's total volume growth for each of the three main players in the different sectors. You've got Visa, you've got MasterCard, and you've got American Express. And over this period, Visa has outgrown its competition by a wide margin. Since 2007, market share has not changed very much between these three main credit card brands. The main difference is American Express has actually lost market share to Visa and to MasterCard. Visa has always been the biggest player, and in the last... 15 years, Visa has actually gained market share. So yeah, they've got a competitive advantage. Let's talk about financial soundness. Since going public, Visa has been consistently increasing its revenue at quite a fast pace, accompanied with a higher margin and better efficiency. And during 15 years, its revenue has gone up 15%. Its gross profits have been increasing. Net income has been increasing year-over-year -year growth. Its free cash flow has gone from $345 million in 2007 to $17.87 bill in 2022. That's a lot. So if you buy Visa shares, which again, I'm not telling you to, this is an ideas show, what is the value return to you? As a shareholder, what should you expect 
from Visa. Since going public, Visa has continuously returned value to its shareholders, mainly in the form of, here's a little hidden secret, stock repurchases. That is, I mean, maybe it's not a secret anymore, but basically from 2020 to 2021, every company in the world's been doing repurchases of stock. That's been Visa's name since the beginning. Until 2016, the company had almost no debt. After issuing a little bit of debt, Visa has repaid that debt $5.75 billion. So they're basically still a no-debt company. Stock repurchases has, have consistently increased during the past decade, making Visa total shares outstanding decline by 30%. When there's less shares, there's more demand, and therefore the price goes up. Dividends have been yearly increasing as well. This is why I actually came across Visa to look at. It was in one of my dividend investing groups. And they have distributed over $3 billion in dividends to shareholders since they started. So what are some risks? What should we be looking at in terms of risks of Visa? Well, main market risk, you've got that. But you're not necessarily worried about ups and downs in the market if you're investing for the long term. And if you think Visa is going away with an 80% duopoly, uh, you're crazy. I don't think crypto is replacing Visa anytime soon. So what are some of the risks? Well, you've got competition. Obviously, that's a risk for every business. Digital payment industry is a highly disruptive industry, and we have seen some breakthroughs with blockchain and tech-enabled companies, and MasterCard is continuing to be a heavy space as well. You've got regulations, which could affect the payment industry. I know the U.S. Fed is starting to look into cash now. It's going to be called the Fed Now system, but really that's trying to combat crypto more than it's trying to combat Visa and MasterCard, but that's something on the horizon is regulations. And then you've got cyber attacks that have been rising in a very rapid state. The world just seems to be gung-ho on theft, at least here in the States. So cyber attacks are also one of those particular risks, but that's going to be a risk for almost any company you'd invest in. So looking at Visa I think it's an interesting idea when you're particularly looking at a company that has a huge moat. You're looking at a company that has a long history of stable investment increase. Year to date, Visa is up 5% over the one-year term from June to June. Visa is up 11%. In the last 10 years, Visa is up 393%. Visa has a dividend yield of 0.79, and many analysts give Visa a buy. I don't specifically, currently at the time of this recording, own any Visa stock, but as always, I've made myself interested, so I'm going to take a look. You've been listening to My Millennial Investor, the show where I search the financial world for the most up-to-date investment ideas, market trends, and income streams, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Nick Bradley, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is produced and published by Oregon Trail Investor in the USA. All information is for entertainment purposes only. The brand My Millennial Investor is used under license.
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.